All right, Joshua 22. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Now, where I'm taking us to this morning in Joshua 22 is a story that uh, picks up in about verse 9, and it goes all the way to the end of the chapter. So it's a lot of verses. It's a whole lot of material there. What I want to do, let's read from verse 9 down to verse 12 so you get a feel for the problem. Because there is a problem here, and then we'll spend the rest of the time unpacking the entire uh, rest of the chapter. All right. Grass with us and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin back up with me to verse 9. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. There's a problem here. Let's pray about it and then get into it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And I pray that by divine grace, you will take your word, empowered by your spirit, apply it to our hearts, that we might be a people of God that honors you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. If you know the history of the United States, you know that after eight long years of war, the American Revolution finally came to an end in 1783. And the 13 colonies, soon to be known as the United States of America, they had to decide what kind of rule, what kind of government would they live under? Because even if the very first leader is a good man, George Washington, he was, even if the very first leader is a good man, there's no guarantee that the subsequent leaders would be good. So after much debate and deliberation, September the 17th, 1787, the delegates, they left the Constitutional Convention there at Independence Hall in Philadelphia, and as they exited the building. Someone came up to Benjamin Franklin and asked him, what kind of government do we have? A republic, he replied, if you can keep it. If you can keep it. Here in the story, we've come to a high point in God's people. 
the nation of Israel, the chosen by God. We've watched the story of Israel unfold in the book of Joshua. If you get an outline, you would see it like this, that in chapters 1 through 4, that's where we saw God's people entering into the promised land. Chapters 5 through 12, they took the promised land. Chapter 12 up to about chapter 21, now they distributed their land. And here in chapter 22, they've got to keep it. Here, here Israel not only has to keep the land, they've got to keep their beliefs. What do they hold dear? What do God's people hold dear? Here's the high point in the history of Israel. You know the book of Joshua leads to the book of Judges, and it's a downhill run in the book of Judges. But, but for right now, in Joshua 22, the people of God, they are faithful, they are victorious, they are unified around the confession that the Lord, He is God. But can they keep it? Can we keep it? As a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, as a band of born-again brothers and sisters, that are striving in our own way and even collectively to honor God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, can we keep it? Can we achieve and then maintain a robust and joyful Christ-centered health? Can we keep it? By God's grace, I think we can keep it. And I think this narrative, and I've been looking at it all week, I think this narrative helps us get there. So what we have here in its context, here is an Old Testament story that gives us some New Testament truth. In fact, I'll just uh, give you a, an idea of where I want the sermon to go, and then we'll come back and take a look at the story itself. I believe that healthy, here's how I would write it, healthy Christians, healthy Christians create a healthy church, and I would just add one other thing, that focuses on the gospel. Healthy Christians, me and you, individuals, create a healthy church, we want that to be Hickory Grove, that then focuses on the gospel. I tell you what, let's do. Let's go back. Uh, we want to spend time in the Bible. Let's go back to the story, back to the narrative, pick up the storyline, see what this is about, what this story is about, and then come back and make some possibly practical applications for our congregation here at Hickory Grove. Join me there in verse 9. <clears throat> verse 9, the war is over. They've taken the land, all of Israel, and now those two and a half tribes that want their land on the other side of the Jordan, they want to go back, and, and Joshua has sent them back. Verse 9 tells us they're on the way home. When we get to verse 10, what we find out is they evidently decide to stop before they go over into their land. They stop right there on the border because Jordan 
the River Jordan would be the border, the boundary of what is the promised land and what is not. What they decide to do is build, verse 10 tells us, they decide to build an altar there, but notice the description of this altar. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you're thinking, wait a second, they, sh they shouldn't do that. But verse 10 tells us they built an altar that is humongous. It is huge. It's a replica that is so big, you could see it forever, for a long way. Verse 10, they build this altar, and then they go back over the river and go back to their land. Verse 11, the rumors start. Verse 11 tells us that the people of Israel, they find out, they hear about it, that uh, those two and a half tribes that are on the other side of the Jordan, they have built an altar. They should not have done that. Deuteronomy 12, the Lord says, do not build an altar. There's one place to worship. You build an altar, there's no telling what's going to happen. And so verse 11 tells us that the people heard it and they are absolutely infuriated. Verse 12 tells us that. When Israel heard what this two and a half tribes did, they are so angry that now they want to go to war with their brothers who they had just been fighting the Canaanites with. Now there's this potential for civil war in Israel. It looks bad in verse 12. It gets worse. <clears throat> They're angry in verse 12, verse 13 and following. The people uh, send a delegation. You can just see it there in verse 13. Here comes a delegation. And this delegation is made up of ten chiefs from the ten tribes and a man named Phineas. Now, if you know Phineas, he is the grandson of Aaron, and he is a firebrand. Phineas is the man in Numbers chapter 25 when he finds out that the people have fallen into Baalism and they're worshiping these foreign gods, and one particular man, this Israelite man, he gets for himself a Midianite woman, and they go off into a tent, and Phineas hears about it. He picks up a spear, runs into that tent, and kills them both. Stops the plague. He is, he is a zealot, Phineas is. So if you want somebody to fight a holy war, you put Phineas in front. He leads this delegation, verses 13, 14, and 15. And they come to their brothers, at least they used to be brothers, the two and a half tribes, they've crossed the river, and they come to them in verse 15, and in verse 16, they lay out what the problem is. And it's scathing. Verse 16. What is this? Look at all the, the way the sins are listed in verse 16. What is this breach of faith that you've committed? It's against the God of Israel. You have turned away. That's the word apostasy. You've turned away. Verse 16. And you are in rebellion against the Lord. Verse 17. Phineas says, don't you remember what happened at Peor, by the way, Peor is what I just described, Numbers 25, that Phineas, when he killed those two people, it's, it's like he's rattling his saber a little bit. Don't you remember what happened back there? How I took care of that? Verse 17. Why would you let that happen? It's going to affect you. Keep coming down the page. Verse 17 and 18. It's going to affect all of Israel. Down below verse 20, he brings up Achan. Don't you remember the sin of Achan? What that did to all of us? And then in verse 19, he even says in verse 19, look, 
if this is a over here on this side of the river, if it's bad for you, if the land is terrible, I'll make provision. You come back over here. Let's find a way to prevent this sin. It's an absolute fire-breathing rebuke in verse 16, 17, 18, 19 is a way out. 20 and 21, it picks it up again. And look what the people do. Verse 21. What a great response. Verse 21, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, El Elohim, Yahweh, El Elohim, Yahweh. Two times in a row, six times all together, they made this wonderful confession of faith. We are true to the one true God. We would never do that. You see it in verse 22 coming down the page. Let, let everybody here know and let it be known that if we are in rebellion, may God strike us dead. There's no way we would do that. So they, they absolutely rejected what they'd been accused of. And not only that, to come down in verse 23, they say, we know what we're supposed to do. We didn't do any kind of offering, any burnt offering, peace offering, sacrifices. We would never do anything like that. And then in verse 24, <clears throat> they start to give reasons. Here's why we built that giant altar. It's for our children. There's a day coming when you, you on the other side of the Jordan, you're in the promised land, <clears throat> when your children will think that just because we live across the river that we aren't the people of God. And we want there to be a symbol, a witness. We built this altar to remind both parties that yes, even us on this side of the, we belong to the people of Israel. We did this for our children. There's no way we would build this altar and defile the name of God. They give a pretty good answer. It's so good, in fact, down in verse 30, come with me there to verse 30, Phineas, this firebrand, verse 30, Phineas, the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the family of Israel who were with him, they heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, and it was good in their eyes. In fact, down in verse 31, at the very end of the verse, Phineas says, now today we know that the Lord is in our midst because of what you've said. You, you haven't sinned. We, we, the rumors were wrong. They're, they feel so good about it that Phineas and the delegation go back across the river and go tell the people of Israel, and it is a wonderful celebration down in verse 32. Verse 33 tells us that the report was good, that there is unity. They've centered around a confession of faith that the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And in fact, you see this, this, this winding it up in verse 34. The people of Reuben, the people of Gad, they called the altar a witness. That big altar there is a witness for us. For they said it is a witness between the two groups of people that Yahweh, here's our confession of faith, the Lord is God. A healthy gathering and unity around a confession of faith. Healthy Christians 
And if healthy Christians make up a healthy church, that healthy church must be unified around one confession of faith, the gospel. Now, what can you and I learn from this long narrative Joshua 22. I'll give you a couple of things. Here's the first one, number one. Number one, we need to be bothered by the right things. If you're going to be bothered about things, make sure you're bothered about the right things. All too often in Christian circles and in Christian churches, people get bothered by the things that they should not be bothered by and don't pay attention to the things they should be paying attention to. Let's go back to the story there in verse 10. You'll find them, the Transjordanian tribes, that's the two and a half tribes, they've set up an altar in verse 10. It is of imposing size and on face value. This is a significant problem. It is a violation of Deuteronomy chapter 12. It is a violation of monotheism, that they worship one God. It is a violation of the sacrificial process described in Leviticus. It is a certain sign of disobedience. They should not have done that. I mean, you can see the reaction in verse 12. The people of Israel, they get the rumors, they see it, and verse 12 says at the end, now they want to go to war. But they understand they are to have one place of worship, and that one place of worship is a preventative medicine to keep them from drifting. See, one, think of it, uh, it's hard for us to think of it in New Testament terms, but think of it like this. One altar would be one faith in the one true God. And just for a moment, I think it is remarkable, a really good sign of health, that Israel is so upset by the appearance of evil. That, that what bothered Israel, Phineas and the ten leaders, what bothered them was that there was, at least they thought there was, a departure from the faith. So that any departure from the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. I think the modern church, I think we, Hickory Grove, I think we can learn something here. You and I need to quit being bothered by lesser things. We need to not be upset with things that are not eternal or of grave circumstances. It should not, look, I've just spent almost two years uh, dealing with COVID and everything around it. That, that should not upset us. We're going to disagree about that. Masks or no masks shouldn't upset you. I think we need to keep our eyes on more pressing issues of unity. Think, things, like, things like personal holiness and a verbal witness and your growth in the Word and meeting people's needs and advancing the gospel mission and defending Christian orthodoxy and preaching the crucified, resurrected Jesus. The crucified, resurrected Jesus that saves sinners of which I am the worst. Let, let, us not be, let us not be bothered by personalities and politics. Let's be more bothered about our own lack of personal piety. 
Let us be bothered by the fact that we're not loving the lost and taking the gospel to them. We ought to be bothered by the right things. What bothers you? What bothers you? You might ask questions. Is this biblical? Is it God-honoring? Is it tied to the gospel? Does it exalt Jesus? What bothers you? We ought to be bothered by the right thing. I think there's another lesson to learn from this passage. Here's the second one, number two. <clears throat> we need to take real and appropriate action. So join me in the text now. Here's the problem, verse 12, 11 and 12. Come down to verse 13 with me. The people of Israel, they heard a rumor and it infuriated them, according to verse 12. They were ready to go to war. So once cooler heads prevailed, they brought a delegation together, one man from each tribe. They put Phineas, who's known for, to be a zealot, put him at the head of it. And, and even though they were enraged, you know what they didn't do? They didn't start bad-mouthing. They didn't start chunking rocks. They didn't start condemning. They went to their brothers to talk about it. They went to find out, is this true? Are you now worshiping at another altar? So verse 13, 14, and 15, this delegation is sent to get to the bottom of it to see why did... Why did the two and a half tribes, why did they do this? Why did they sin so grievously? And, and make no mistake, the people of Israel, they were really offended. But I like, I like their approach, and I think we should take it. Approach that is direct, is uncompromising, it's also controlled. Look, we want, to be, we want to be unified. There's no doubt about it. I, I, we ought to preach unity. We want to be unified. But unity cannot exist around apostasy. Unity can exist where there is apostasy. So Phineas, who's a good man for the job, Phineas leads this delegation. And, and notice the serious nature of the accusations and the directness. Come down with me to verse 16. There in verse 16, I mean, he just lists out the sins. It is a breach of faith. You have broken the covenant. You have turned away. That's apostasy. You have, verse 16, rebelled against the Lord. And so Israel lays these accusations before the two and a half tribes. And then he illustrates and expands. Down to verse 17, he says, remember the sin of Peor, how terrible that was. Down to verse 20 and 21, remember the sin of Achan. Remember that there's going to be, if you do this, all of the consequences won't just be on your head. It'll affect the rest of us. You know what he's doing? I, which I think we should do more of. He describes the devastating nature of sin. He describes that your sin, you think it's just personal to you, but what it ends up doing is it affects the entire congregation. It hurts everybody around you. This is a right assessment of what sin is like. Here's Phineas pleading, and go look at it, even in verse 19. Phineas is pleading with them. Don't, now they don't, Phineas doesn't know that they're not actually in sin. So he's pleading with them. In fact, verse, verse 19 is redemptive. I'm pleading with you to not do this. I'll help you get out of this sin. We'll provide a place for you on this side of the river. Come back over here. Whatever it takes, don't do it. 
Isn't that what brothers and sisters in Christ should do when we go after sinners? And you have people in your life that you know we don't stand and gossip and talk about, we go to help, and we help them find a way to solve the problem. Here is a, a God-centered approach to dealing with a problem, a problem that is significant. This is, this is even grace-filled. Verse 19, here's Phineas, this firebrand saying, we'll provide you a place to live. If, if there's so many pagans in that land, come back over here. Here is Christian community. Here is caring for one another. Here, here is truth. Here is truth as the center of unity and not just unity for unity's sake. You know what this isn't? This isn't gossip. <clears throat> this isn't gossip. This isn't posting a passive-aggressive statement on Facebook. This isn't this isn't disappearing. What a terrible thing. And people just disappear from, just disappear from the church. This isn't bad-mouthing. This is knowing that your brother has something against you, and before you make your offering, you go to your brother. This is Matthew chapter 18. When there is someone in sin, this is going with humility. This is a congregation taking sin seriously. This is a congregation taking sin seriously and then acting on it. This is not maintaining the peace at all costs. That's not what they're doing. This is humbly, with humility, this is protecting the truth at all costs. It is done humbly. It is done clearly. It is done graciously. It is done redemptively but it's done genuinely. You see, we need to be bothered by the right things, but when we're bothered, it's not enough to stand there and shout about it. We need to actually take real and appropriate action. We go to a brother or sister. I'll give you a third thing. Let's put it on top of that. You go if you're going to do that. Now, if you're going to do that, number three, here's a third thing to learn. We need to be willing to listen. We don't just make accusations. We need to be willing to listen. Join me there in verse 21. Now the, the table is turned a bit, and now the two and a half tribes, they have an opportunity to, to tell what they were doing and why. And notice what they do. We'll just sort of run through their explanation. But it's interesting that we don't hear Phineas and the people of Israel speak to verse 30. They stood there and listened to the whole account. Look at what the accused tribes do right off the bat. Verse 21, no less than six times the Lord, he is God. Look what they say in verse 21. The mighty one, God the Lord. So if you're reading it in Hebrew, it would go like this. El Elohim Yahweh. And then say it again. El Elohim Yahweh. Two times they make this declaration of God. It is him. It is a what you have here, this piling up of names right there, it's unique in the Old Testament. You won't find it anywhere else. Here you have a confession of faith. They are affirming, these accused people are affirming as forcibly as possible that they are loyal to the one true God. More than that, if you keep reading it, down, come down the page with me, you'll find out that they have nothing to hide. There is this, this idea of 
of transparency. They've got nothing to hide. They are ready to prove it. Five times, starting in verse 23, they say we took no, we made no sort of sacrifice or offering or worship. Down in verse 23. I, I like that, um, you know what I like they did? I think it's important to do. They made confession in verse 21. It is a confession, a statement of faith. And then in verse 23, down to about verse 26 or 7 or 8, they made denials. I think it's a good thing to do when you're trying to be clear. You're confessing and then denying. And then come with me to verse 24. In verse 24, they give their motivations. They say, okay, number one, we didn't do anything wrong. We believe in the one true God. We would never worship at this altar. Let me tell you exactly why we did this in verse 24. And you just keep seeing it. Verse 24, 25, 26, 27. They give all their reasons, and their reasons centered around the next generation. Their motivation is, we want our children to grow up knowing they are a part of the people of God. We are afraid that your children will see the Jordan River as a boundary and exclude our children. So we put this giant altar here as a witness. And, and verse 29, and verse 29 is, is important. They cap it off with a clear understanding of how it would be sin to worship here. Notice what they say, verse 29. Far be it from us that we would rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering or grain offering or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord, our, of our God that stands back there at Shiloh, just tabernacle. It, it's, you know what, verse 29 is a complete repudiation. Verse 30, look what that firebrand Phineas does. Verse 30, you read it, he listens and he believes them. Phineas says, that makes sense. This, this is a, a legitimate explanation. I believe what you're saying. He accepted the answer, and he was satisfied, and he dropped the matter. One, one thing we need to do is quit shouting past one another and just be able to hear what is the reasoning. And then you might realize that the accusations you had actually were wrong. And Phineas did. I mean, Phineas was ready to go to war. He's not afraid to go to war. But hearing their response, their confession of faith, their denial of sin, their statement of their motivation, and the complete understanding that there's only one place to worship, Phineas said, this is, this is good. And look at the next step. It goes beyond listening. I'll just give you a fourth one. Number four, we need to not only learn to listen, we need to rejoice with the truth. Rejoice with it. When we see uh, brothers and sisters that might have been estranged, but it turns out we had it all wrong, we need to be willing to say, you know what, not only do I believe you, but I rejoice. Verse 31, let me show you where I get that. Verse 31, Phineas, uh, Phineas declares that the Lord is with us. It's obvious that God is here because we are unified around the truth. Verse 32, Phineas and his delegation, they go back across the river. They go back to the people of Israel. 
and they report. And they tell them in verse 33, that, that uh, verse 32, that look, there's no reason for us to go to war. They believe just like we believe. Verse 33, the, re the result is that the people are blessed. God is honored. They don't want to fight anymore. They are brothers and sisters. Verse 33, they affirm the foundational truths of the faith that the Lord, He is God. We need to rejoice with the truth. I'll just put one more on top of it and I'll be done. Number five, we need to unify around the gospel. Verse 34 uh, is the editor ending the story with a reminder of the name and the purpose of the altar. Verse 34, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar a witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord, He is God. It is a reminder that Yahweh, the person, that the Lord is God. You see, the unifying factor, and it only lasts a little bit because we get to the judges, we, we see it fall apart. But the unifying factor in ancient Israel was not her culture. It wasn't architecture. It wasn't race. It wasn't economy. It wasn't military objectives. The unifying factor was that the Lord, He is God. In the same way, for Christians of all stripes and all backgrounds, the unifying factor is the joyful declaration that Jesus is Lord. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, living a perfect life in a way that we couldn't, going to the cross and there at the cross, taking sin and giving righteousness. That's the exchange. There at the cross, taking the punishment for sinners, the place of sinners. Three days later, after he died, three days later, God raised him from the dead. He has ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he intercedes for his people even this morning. And the unifying theme, the thing that draws us together is the gospel offer that any sinner, of which I'm the worst, any sinner that will repent of his sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, believe that Jesus died for you, you will be saved. Here's the offer. In fact, this is how I'll close this morning. Here's the offer and the call today. Brothers and sisters that are here, that are spiritually unhealthy, that are devotionally dry, that are emotionally unstable, when we sing this morning, I would invite you just to come and pray. Pastors are glad to pray with you or pray for you if you'd like for them to. When we sing, it's a good time just to come and pray. For those of you that are here, maybe you're a sinner still in your sin. The gospel says, come to Jesus. 
and you'll be safe. This morning when we sing, I would just invite you to come and let a pastor talk to you about what it means to give your life to Jesus. Join me as we pray. With your heads bowed this morning as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment and prayer, every believer here, I would just would invite you. You can either pray here at the altar or you can pray for the people next to you. But you pray. Or, or if it's such that you are burdened in your own life, you may want to just come forward and pray. Or possibly you are without Christ. You need to, to have the healing, forgiving balm of God found at the cross of Jesus. We invite you to come and rejoice what it means to be a child of God. Father, thank you for your word that is good. Thank you for your spirit that moves. Thank you for the gospel that unifies us. So be honored here among your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand please as we sing together?